Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is um, my high school friend, Michael Broadhead, and his husband, Michael Masuni. Is that how I'm pronouncing your name right? Masoni. And I'm really grateful for this couple to be on the podcast. It's a Sunday afternoon. We I've just come out of church and at church, a big theme today was love one another. And I don't know how to love one another um, any better than having people that are outside of my normal circle share their story. And so this is, you know, a couple in a same-sex marriage. They've been in this partnership for 25 years. As I mentioned, Michael Broadhead is one of um, my high school friends. He graduated from Highland High School in Salt Lake City two years after me in 1981. I'm aging both of us, Michael. And um, I didn't know Michael really well, but I think somehow I picked up either during high school or after high school that Michael was gay. And I even remember those of you that have flown America West Airlines based in Phoenix that Michael worked for and now works for Southwest. I remember he was a flight attendant on my flight. It was. How long ago did America West get merged into Southwest? Uh, America West didn't, actually. America oh, West that's bought- right. U.S. Got, Airways, then they bought American. I'm getting those airlines in we Phoenix. We bought Morris. Southwest That's right. Morris. Well, America West disappeared, and you made your way to Southwest, <laughs> I, I guess. They did. And that's got to be at least 10 years ago. Or more. Or more. <laughs> I'll be that young if you'd like. Yeah, no. It was quite a bit longer than that, but yeah. But I just remember I saw Michael on the flight, and I just didn't engage with him. And I've always thought, I've always felt like part of what I'm doing um, in these podcasts, in this book is sort of um, atoning for past sins because I should have just gone up and had a nice conversation with you. But I somehow thought as a committed Latter-day Saint that I should pull away from people that were gay. And um, I'm recognizing that was a mistake on my part and part of the reason having you on the podcast is so we can hear more of your story. And so uh, there'll be a couple... We'll, Here's an outline of the podcast listeners. Sometimes these go according to plan, but sometimes they kind of veer a little bit. So hang in there with us. This is kind of an unscripted um, event sometimes. But segment one will be Michael sharing his life growing up in Salt Lake City. We'll pick up in the eighth grade and go through BYU. And then the second segment, we'll talk about his LDS mission and up until and through his marriage to Michael M. And... Um, We'll talk, uh, we'll have Michael M. chime in at times about an experience he had with uh, Michael's grandfather and some experiences with his, Michael's extended family. Then the third segment, we'll talk about kind of current issues with Michael Broadhead's mother who died about a year and a half ago and just where things are currently. So, you know, I just hope this podcast brings us together as the same human family and we have insights into what it's like to be gay. And growing up in conservative faith traditions, Michael Broadhead came obviously from the LDS faith tradition. And Michael Mus, I'm going to say your last name wrong again, Michael Massoni. Michael Massoni, who grew up Catholic in Chicago and later in Phoenix. So that's as long as an introduction as I ever do. That's three and a half minutes. I like to get our guests talking. So I'm um, welcome both of you to the podcast. And Michael Broadhead, why don't you just take us back to eighth grade? Wow, thank you. Um, I, I like your introduction. Um, I think it's more than perfect that when you were at church today, it was about love one another. And I reflect back on when you were in that passenger seat 
afraid to talk to me. I was afraid to talk to you. It's the fear was a common thread that we had back then. Those moments of, of fear and awkwardness, not knowing what would happen out of what we now call irrational fear. And so we had that bond. We had that same connection. So it was interesting that you bring that, bring that up. Um, so this is my first podcast. So um, this is fascinating to sit here. I think this is so fascinating that we were in high school together and over four decades later, here we sit and uh, talking to each other. I love this. Um, same. So our story coming to Utah was a little abrupt. We were living in Laguna, California, and my dad had told us that we were going to finish high school there. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves moving to Salt Lake City very abruptly. Um, it was bumpy. It was a bumpy transition. Um, my dad worked for a large corporation that was headquartered in upstate New York, big divisions in California. And so we moved every two years back and forth. So we had never lived anywhere more than two years, and we had always lived in areas where there was no Mormon density whatsoever. We were oftentimes the only kids in school that were the Mormons. Sometimes we met in schools for church. Um, we didn't have ward houses where we lived. So moving to Salt Lake City was quite a shock, uh, moving into that density of Mormonism. And um, it had some great times, and it had some difficult times. Um, but as I kind of moved into that phase of my life, I know you can relate to this. Here I was every Sunday morning walking up to church, which was totally foreign to me, walking to church and not driving an hour, uh, going to priesthood meeting. And I can remember being in the teacher's quorum. And uh, one particular Sunday, we came in and the bishop was there, and he was with the first counselor and our priesthood leader, and they had an envelope. And they closed the door, and they gave us that lesson that I will never forget, that pamphlet that word pamphlet that we never use anymore, called for young men only. I don't know if you remember this. I do. It was, for a 14-year-old kid, it was borderline traumatic to sit there and stare at my shoes and think, how do they know that they're talking about me? And I remember very well, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've never gone back to read that brochure, but I remember the messages of, you'll grow up to be alone, you'll be an embarrassment to your family, and um, it was next to murder in terms of sins. And this is regarding homosexuality. homosexuality. And it was in that brochure for young men only. And it was, you were, you were told that you were going to have a life, a life of loneliness and guilt and shame. And it sounds like you're aware of your sexual orientation if you're internalizing the pamphlet that way. I didn't fully know what it was, but I knew there was something. I mean, I knew I was attracted to men. I didn't have all the, the vocabulary. to define it. So, um, so. I remember the effect of that on me. I left there that day thinking some really dark thoughts about myself. It really had an imprint on me. And it was, that's the message of the time. That's, what, that's how they used to message. And so I was sitting there thinking, well, how did they know? How did they know it was me? And so. Um, how did they know it was me? Did you actually think that lesson was just for you? Well, you think they're speaking to you. Like, how do they know this secret? It's honest. How do they know this secret? And probably logical in your eighth grade mind. Yeah. So that subplot began to develop um, of keeping the secret, the dark secret. Um, as I then moved into junior high and high school, you know, that was accelerated by the fact that I had classmates that you know um, that used to openly brag about going gay bashing in Salt Lake City. And it 
literally terrorized me that they would do that to me. Because if they would have seen me in those places, they would do the same thing to me. And so that began to create the, you know, the effects of those behaviors on me, you know, drove the secret even deeper and darker um, so that I couldn't let anybody know about it. Um, So I was trying to do all the things I was supposed to be doing, church, family, scouts, all that stuff. And yet this other wheel was just developing and spinning in my head. And um, so my way of dealing with kind of an awkward fit of not fitting in and having all this and being frightened from my friends is that I started to work. I went out and started hustling my first job before ninth grade at a restaurant earning a dollar an hour. And so I found ways to then go work for another restaurant that made more money and go work and then go to retail. And I kept myself kind of away from my high school group that was terrorizing me, if you will. Uh, And I worked. I worked every day, every day that I could and on the weekends. And so I had excuses not to be around them because it was, it was, it was too painful. And so I worked the whole time. And so by the time I turned 16, I was able to have a car. It wasn't a very good one. I spent more on repairs, but I had a car. Tell our listeners what kind of car. Oh, it was a Monte Carlo and it took all my money to keep it running. (laughs) But, um, but it was my freedom and it was my independence and it was my mobility. And it kind of gave me the space to exist where I didn't feel like I did. Um, in high school, we had a really cool classmate that did gymnastics that I just thought was the coolest person on the planet. And so rather than take gymnastics at high school, I came out to Murray, Utah and took gymnastics at a place to do it away from Highland. Um, and that gave me some time on my own to just do my own thing. Um, and again, that wasn't by mistake. Um, the mocking and the teasing accelerated to the point where in today's world, we would say that I was probably in a stated, a state of panic attack pretty much every day that elevated anxiety and fear and panic. And I would do everything to avoid these people in school. Um, I tried to do some things, but I wasn't that good of a scholar. I didn't sing. I didn't act. I didn't uh, play team sports. And so my, again, I found my place of existence by working and, um, those people at work didn't question me. They didn't harass me. I had a clean slate with them and we just had a common bond of working. So um, I was thinking about this podcast the other day and I was really taken back to a time in my car when I would go to my car and I would listen to one song over and over and over again. And you, I know you're going to remember this, but the music and the words of that song literally gave me moments of peace. And it was that song by Christopher Cross called Sailing. Yeah, I used to sit in my car and just hit rewind and play because I just found some space in that song to just what we would now say, calm my mind, if you will. Um, so all this trying to fit in, all this conflict, all these things, you know, um, the effects of all these behaviors kind of creating this vortex. Um, was rooted in the fact that I wanted to have sex with a man. I was afraid of making out with or having sex with a woman and failing at it and then being shamed and mocked. So I thought I was really doubly um, cursed at that stage because I couldn't do either. I didn't want to do either. Uh, You know, they scared me. Um, It's honest. Yeah. And so 
after a while, um, these two plots began to really thicken and become very confusing. Um, and so I, you know, I just didn't know what to do. I, I was, I was at a tough place. And so as time moved on, you know, the scripts were set and I was doing my thing. And then all of a sudden guys that were older than me that I admired tremendously, that I just thought had the world on a hook were going on missions. And I went to a couple of farewells and I thought, that's what I need to do. That's what I want to do. And that's what motivated me to go on a mission. Um, and so I did. Um, so I remember this so well, getting ready for my mission, doing all the things, checking all the boxes. And um, I was given a patriarchal blessing. And of course, you were told to fast for 24 hours before, which to an 18-year-old means you're starving to death. <laughs> and I went to have my blessing. And I remember driving down there in my car and I did it alone. And I remember being terrified because the stake president was my dad's best friend. And I thought, oh, he's going to be told that I'm gay in this blessing and I can't go. He's going to be told while he's giving me this blessing. And so the whole time he had his hands on my head giving me that blessing, I thought, oh, he's going to be told any second. And he's going to stop and tell me and I'm going to have to leave. And it didn't happen. And I left really confused. I thought, well, how did that happen? Um, so then it came time, you know, the, one of the next steps, you both have heard about this, going to the temple for the first time. Uh, it's a little unnerving the first time you go. I didn't have a lot of preparation for it. And I was so terrified when I was inside the temple, again, fasting, starving, going to the temple, relatives were there. And I remember thinking at any moment, the whole time I was there, that somebody was going to come tap me on the shoulder and say, you need to leave. You can't be here. And I remember that thinking that the entire time that I was there, it's like, how have these people not been told yet by the spirit that I'm gay? I mean, how did I get in here? Um, and I thought, well, it's time to go on my mission. I'm going to get this right. And it's going to make this whole gay thing go away. And so I went on my mission and, um, I had a great experience. I made some amazing connections with people on my mission. Um, oddly enough, I don't know. Where did you go? Um, oddly enough, I went back to where we used to live. I was called to the Rochester, New York mission, which is where we had lived several times. And so I was elated at that because I didn't want to go anywhere I didn't know. And I was lucky enough to go to a place that I knew and I felt very comfortable there. Um, but I served in areas where we pretty much didn't live and had some amazing connections. Um, I had in one of my really small towns, I had this amazing companion, Tom Bruff, and we just, we had this crazy existence in this little town <laughs> for church. We met in the bottom of a grocery store when people would drop cans on the shelves above us, we would hear them. Um, we had this guy that we taught every week who took all the lessons and his name was Gary. And he was this great guy with an amazing sense of humor that, used to joke with us that would say, you know, if you guys would serve ham sandwiches for sacrament, you'd get more people to join your church. <laughs> um, but we were at Gary's house every week. He'd feed us. We just had a great time. And Gary joined the church later. And I was able to go back down to his area for his baptism. And Tom and I were so happy. And many, many years later, um, Gary took his life. Wow. And Gary was gay. And Gary had joined the Mormon church to try to make it go away. And he had a really bad experience with somebody trying to extort him for money. And he literally left his house and just jumped off a bridge. 
And, you know, when you talk about the effects of behaviors, you just start thinking, oh my gosh, what just transpired there? So, um, that was, it was, my bond with Gary is, it, it, it's always there. And I don't talk about Gary very much, but I know what he was doing. And I, I may not have had all the words at the time, but I, but I, but I know what Gary was doing. Gary was coming from a very good place and um, was doing what a lot of people did then. And so anyway. Um, listeners, I just, you know, I listen to these stories and I'm just, I'm grateful for Michael's courage just to share this, this story. I hope you recognize somebody with a really good heart, a desire to do what's right, a desire to move forward in the very best way he can, um, get a patriarchal blessing, serve a mission. It sounds like, um, you were a really good missionary and you help people. I had a good time. I made some really good friends and met some amazing people. And I would say that was more the focus of where my heart was. And um, t- let's just start with segment two. Um, so that's going to, you know, kind of concluding of your mission, coming home and leading to your marriage to Michael Massoni. Well, I got home and things were kind of crazy. Um, while I was gone, my dad's business had failed and my parents made the decision not to tell me. It was a very rough economic time at that time. If you remember winter of 83, it was pretty bad time and uh, came home to the fact that assets were being sold and there was a lot of confusion and uh, they had decided not to tell me. Um, So um, as soon as I got home, the subplot of my life was still there. It had been tucked away in a Tupperware container for two years. I got home and I knew I was gay and those worlds started to collide very quickly. They were like uh, two skill saws hitting each other. And um, it was very apparent. I had a pretty rough time. Um, I tried to do everything I could not to associate with being gay, but I knew that I was. Um, I became in debt. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was always in a state of panic, trying to avoid family and friends and not let the two groups meld, gay or straight, gay family. And, you know, Salt Lake's a small place to try to make that happen. And occasionally they would bump into each other or something would collide and I would have disabling panic. Um, When I talk about the effects of behaviors, when it started to become known that I was gay and people were talking about it, um, I had some adult friends pull me aside and tell me that they had put my name on the prayer roll in the temple. And I'll never forget the words they said, um, we put your name on the prayer roll and we're fasting for you to get over this. You are not this. You are the other Mike Broadhead we love. And when you talk about the effects of behaviors, those that's a moment where I remember thinking, wow, they must really not like this. And so it drives the secret deeper and darker. Um, and like every guy who's in Mormonism, who's gay, who's trying to be straight. I thought, well, okay, I'll go to BYU and whip this. I'll go to BYU. And uh, so I ended up at BYU and um, it was a very strange existence at BYU. The first guy that I met, I started dating at BYU. Um, And we would go to Salt Lake City on Fridays and come back on Sunday nights. And so I was in 
Provo and BYU in school Monday through Friday at noon. And then at Friday at noon, I was gay, going to Salt Lake City for the weekend, coming back to Provo on Sunday nights, just in a steep depression. And this just spiraled into all kinds of self-doubts and um, all kinds of problems. Um, After that relationship ended, I met another guy that lived in Provo. And I actually, when I would spend the night at his house, I would get up Monday morning. And I always remember leaving his house, going to my religion class at BYU, and my head just spinning. Like, I, I couldn't even formulate because of the two worlds that were existing at the time. It was pretty rough. Um, and so I fled there and the relationship because I wanted to be straight. I just wanted to try it again. Um, I made two very good friends at BYU that I'm friends with to this day. And when you talk about the effects of behaviors, they never asked probing questions or they never said, is there something you want to tell us? They were just my friends. And we had a good time when we had time together. And they're still very dear friends today. And they didn't question. They just, we just hung out and had a great time and laughed. And I'm, I still think what a, what a gift that was to have those two in my life at that time. And they're still in it today. And they're, they're really big friends in my life today. Um, they've been there for everything. Um, I love the way you described how that friendship was helpful to you. Oh, it was very helpful. And what they did that we all can do, listeners, as part of that friendship that has sustained, you know, all those years since BYU because of what they did for you at BYU. Yep. We can all do that. And it was easy. Um, I've listened to some of your other podcasts and, you know, people sometimes have goodwill and they want to ask the question, is there something you want to tell me? It's okay. You can trust me. Or um, it's okay if you tell me that you're gay. You know, those things just cause fear and panic as opposed to just granting somebody space and just be a friend and don't ask or probe. Just let the friendship exist. Um, That kind of space can give person life. It really can. That kind of space can give person life. Pretty powerful statement, Michael. Yeah, they did. And they know who they are. <laughs> um, so after all that, and I was, all of my worlds were caving in on me. I had an uncle that knew something was wrong. Um, he got me into counseling. It went bad so fast. It was with his, my uncle, he meant such good, but the counselor was so corrupt. Um, he put me into reparative therapy and that was just awful. Um, the guilting things. And um, so... Um, I will share with you and your listeners a story. It was so bad that ironically enough, um, <laughs> I guess it's just poetic justice. The building that his office was in caught fire and burned. And I went into the building after it burned and pulled my file out of his drawer. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I thought, no, he does. He doesn't, he doesn't get to have my information. He, and I just thought, no, he doesn't get to have that. So I actually went into a building at night that had burned and I knew where the desk was and I pulled my file out. So um, I, I think did, that's just fine. I didn't, I didn't want to leave my information with him. So, um, but anyways, so after that, um, I get to the next part where I basically fled Utah and that's how I ended up in Phoenix. And that's where I've been ever since. Um, yeah. Tell us just more about Phoenix. Um, I know you had a good experience in Cedar city. I missed part of that Phoenix being out of Salt Lake city experience, but just Tell us how you found Michael and tell us about Phoenix or tell us about coming out to family. Well, um, I moved to Phoenix kind of as a place to just start all over again. And I was lucky enough to get a job at America West. 
And so that's actually where Michael and I met. Um, I remember the first time I saw him when he walked off an airplane. <laughs> um, he knows how I described that. Um, I, I, I had an immediate crush. And, um, but that's a whole separate story. Um, so once I was in Phoenix, um, then came the process of telling my parents that I was gay. And what I did is um, through our work, I went to a therapist and spent about three or four months getting ready in therapy, role playing and dialoguing the whole thing so that I could sit down and talk to my parents and feel like I had the confidence to kind of walk them through it and to be able to focus on more of a clinical approach and not an emotional approach. Um, and so uh, eventually I did that. It went just the opposite of what I expected. Um, and in terms of, I thought one was going to be understanding and one was not. And they went, they both went down the exact opposite path um, at the time. Uh, one, And so it kind of caught me off guard that way. Um, but it worked out. It worked out okay. Um, um, there were pockets of peace that came along with time. Um, it's a process that I would say, and I think my husband would agree, it's really never fully over. Because you get these pockets of peace, and then as relatives kind of come in and out of the circle, there's moments of awkward kind of quietness that sometimes you'll encounter with a relative. The first time I say my husband, like if you're at a funeral, like the worst place in the world, right? And somebody's, oh, who's this? Oh, this is my husband. And there's that moment of just silence. And they don't know. And it's still there a little bit. So it's never fully done. And it's something that is ongoing. Um, so it's ongoing. Um, it's a pretty good phrase. Pockets of peace. Pockets of peace. Um, one of the coolest things that I had happen with my family, with my husband is when we were living, obviously we were now together and, um, I wanted him to meet my grandpa, but my grandpa was getting very old. So we flew over to Newport beach and we spent the day with my grandpa. He was living right in Newport and, um, my grandpa, a pretty amazing man. Um, he was best friends with Ezra Benson and Howard Hunter. They were in the state presidency in Pasadena together. So if you were at my grandpa's house, it was very normal for the phone to ring and we would, you would hear him say, um, oh, Ezra's on the phone or Howard's on the phone. So we grew up thinking that was just normal. That was just a normal thing in my grandpa's house. And um, after he died, um, he had two big funerals, one in Newport Beach and then a huge one up here in the avenues somewhere. And um, so we went to the funeral in Newport and um, in a very loving act of compassion, my dad took the two of us because I found out later that my grandpa and I were in the same fraternity. So I got a hold of Sigma Nu and I had his badge reprinted with his badge number on it. And we wanted to put it in his casket. And so we met my dad at the mortuary in a very loving way. My dad explained to Michael, who was now staring at some clothing in a casket and things that he had never seen before in the Mormon rituals. And so my dad very lovingly and caringly explained to Michael in a very non-complicated way what all of this symbolism was. Um, and it was pretty amazing to have that. And then we flew up here for the Salt Lake funeral and it was huge. Um, I remember Gordon Hinckley spoke and so did John Huntsman at the funeral. Um, but when you talk about the effects of behaviors, um, had that amazing experience with, with my dad in the mortuary. And yet I was, the, the nuance message was messaged to me that 
we couldn't sit with family at the funeral in Salt Lake. And there was nothing to do in that moment other than for me to make the decision that I'm not sitting with my family. I'm sitting with my husband. And so we sat with friends um, because that's just the way things were even still at that time. Um, There was no explosion of insult to have in that moment. It was an instantaneous decision that we went and sat, well, with friends that you know. And uh, that's where I wanted to be. Um, And so it was very interesting to have those two experiences within that one experience. So, um, Thanks for just sharing the complicated road you're on. I, I've learned listeners that um, hearing stories is just part of my responsibility to my fellow human men. And I wish I could go back and a lot of listeners do. And I hope listeners aren't saying it wasn't that bad or they didn't mean that or you, because it just, I think we need to sit with someone like Michael in the pain and validate the pain. And I think that's the only way we can help people heal. You've done a lot of healing already, Michael. But when you, you're probably on defensive mode for these pockets of peace that end. And I think listeners, the thing that I think we can do is just sit with people in their pain. I'm a committed Latter-day Saint, and I've learned that I can sit with people in their painful experiences, even in the church I love and support, and support our church leaders. And I can do both. It's not an either-or. So I just sit with Michael in these difficult experiences, and I just recognize there's no roadmap. There's no owner's manual. There was no, like, mentoring. There was no other gay men that were 10 or 20 or 30 years ahead of you. So this is how you do it. Um, You're just in, you're just in survival mode. And that's when I get really tenderhearted. And I wrote about this in the book. And then I'm going to ask your husband a question. You know, when I went to my 40th high school reunion, that's right. um, A summer or two ago, we, you know, 40 year reunion, you have a part of the reunion that's the pictures of all those that died. Uh-huh. And some of those that died were gay, and some of those, I assumed, went to big cities because that's all you could. That's kind of all you could do. That's, that's right. The only safe place in those, and you got AIDS, <laughs> and you died, and you're not at your forty year reunion. So anytime I meet someone like Michael that's alive from my era, you're right. We had that just, happen. We had that happen in my class. I'm yeah. just glad you're alive, and I'm glad you found a. A lifelong partner. I, you know, I write in the book where, yeah, I was, I recognize legal, civil, same-sex marriage allows these kind of relationships to exist. That is, to me, a healthier road than the options that were available to the gay people in the 80s, which were the club scene. I don't even know the right vocabulary. Multiple partners, club scene. And this is just a healthier path for the two of you to share your life together. And as you walked in, I can tell you've been together for 25 years and you love each other. Yep. And He puts up with a lot. <laughs> and your marriage, like my marriage, probably has ups and downs. Yep. And, and that's just part of life. But to share those ups and downs together. So, you know, that's me just talking the best way I can talk about this, listeners, is seeing us as the same human family and recognizing for, for gay Latter-day Saints and maybe for gay Catholics and, and gay um, people of other faiths, it's been a bumpy road and there's been really difficult experiences. And I think honoring those experiences is part of healing. 
But talk about um, Michael Massoni. Talk about this experience. I think you had an experience with um, Michael's grandfather before he died. So I want to get Michael Massoni and your husband in the podcast. And I and I know that you had an experience with your grandfather, Dakin Broadhead. And maybe, Michael, you can talk about that experience you had with Dakin Broadhead. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, so uh, as Michael stated, we, um, we decided that we were going to go visit Dakin uh, in order to, uh, to, to, for me to get to meet him. And because uh, Dakin was getting on in years and Michael did brief me up appropriately at who Dakin was. Uh, and Dakin was a very um, prominent individual, um, uh, both in, in life in general and then uh, within the church. So, um, but I wanted to, I, I wanted to learn everything I could learn about Michael and his family. So we decided to go up there and we did. And, um, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if this was going to be, if Dakin was going to be way stoic and, uh, you know, whether he was going to, um, see things for what they were. Um, but went with an open mind and, um, I, I still remember him coming to the door. He welcomed us in. Um, we sat down, we, we chit chatted for a little while. And, um, and then ultimately, I mean, he, he started asking me questions about my family and, and my religion at the, you know, Catholicism. And then he said something that was a very profound because I was looking at this man who had such a breadth of life's experience and was so respected within the Mormon faith. And he said, I can tell you two care deeply for each other. Um, so that took me aback. Um, um, you know, uh, what did that mean to both of you when he said that? It was, it was um, the greatest form of acceptance there could have been from um, what was at the time the patriarch of the family. Um, and a man who obviously was wise beyond the pale. Um, so that, that meant a great deal to me. And I remember when we left, we could not stop talking about it on the ride back uh, to the hotel. Actually, we weren't at a hotel. We were at your parents' house, right? So uh, the ride back, and um, it was just an amazing experience. And, um, and then, you know, uh, Dakin's passing uh, happened, and uh, I was honored that uh, even though, well, if you remember, Michael, um, I actually almost insisted that you go sit with your family and you told me no. So, uh, and I understood that, uh, but you know, I wanted you to be with your family, but anyhow. Yep. So that was, um, again, it was a, like a, a big deal in our relationship, especially that early on to get a nod, uh, a nod of support, uh, from a most unlikely source in my mind. Any more, that's a great experience. Is any more experiences, Michael M., you would like to share with family or extended family? So I kind of 
this kind of comes back around to uh, uh, moments or pockets of peace, right? Uh, the Dakin experience was a genuine pocket of peace uh, in this journey. Um, we've had other experiences that, um, that have not been so pleasant. Uh, there was a um, particular event that took place that we went to and uh, we volunteered basically our services to help sort of organize and, um, and get this event going. And uh, when we got there, uh, we had to travel to get there and we got there and um, everybody, we all got introduced and we all started doing our thing to make the event happen. And then while the event was happening that we put a lot of effort into, it all of a sudden turned into a very hostile environment. Uh, and I, I personally felt uh, threatened to a certain degree, like I don't belong here. And then I got very defensive over him because we were getting all of this negative energy. And, um, and it almost became a fight or flight kind of feeling. Um, and, uh, we, we, uh, we put our airline faces on and we, uh, kept our composure and, uh, and kept our professionalism intact and our dignity and dignity intact. And then we left. Um, and, uh, that was, that, that, that was one of those unpleasant spots. Um, a more pleasant spot or another pocket of peace if you'll have it, is uh, when I did first meet um, Michael's parents, uh, they were lovely to me. They were. Um, they, they, they embraced almost from the beginning. But then again, um, I remember this very clearly too with your, with your father at one point where he, you could tell he was having um, a real rough time on how to how to embrace us as a couple and yet maintain his view of how life should be based on his teachings right within the church so i rem i remember this i know you do too where he sat down and he goes you know I really wish, you know, you guys were just like best friends, maybe came from the same stake or something. And, you know, you're just your best buddies and, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be around each other for the rest of your lives. And there's nothing bad about that. I just, I wish it was that way. And I, you know, I was, I, I didn't know how to take it at first. I mean, it was like, okay, am I insulted? Um, you know, am I not insulted? Where am I? And I finally, I, I rationalized with myself and I tried to put myself in his spot and what is his view and narrative on life. And he's trying to cope with what he knows isn't going to go away because it was very apparent by that point that he and I were going to be together. So... I'm struck by your empathy in the middle of pain. Thank you. You know, there's behind your head's a picture of 
Jesus. <laughs> and I just think you practice that in these situations. Um, <laughs> I like your term, your airline face, because <laughs> you've both been in the airline business for decades and you've had some difficult experiences um, with passengers. I assume that could be another podcast or two. Or three. <laughs> and maybe I've been one of those passengers and I need to repent at times. But um, that's a lot of empathy for Michael Broadhead's dad. And I one of the reasons I wrote the book is to help LDS parents sort of have better tools to support their LGBTQ children. Because often, to your point of sort of developing empathy, there's not much a roadmap for parents. True. And they don't quite know how to hold these two truths, just like you have to live it. <laughs> being gay and, a, and Mormon or a gay and a Latter-day Saint, but they have to sort of, how do I support a, a kid in a same-sex marriage and still believe in my faith? And and does my faith require me to not support you to some extent? Where is that line? And that's why I was grateful for Tom Christofferson's book. Um, his parents wrote about just having Tom and his partner be part of the family. Um, and it really helped LDS parents to know we can do both. We can support our kids and just honor the path they choose. And that is part of our church versus selling out our church. And maybe parents, and your story will help parents do better. Um, but I'm I'm struck with, you know, going back to Dakin's, I, I wish listeners could have seen Michael Broadhead's re- emotional reaction to right now when his husband's retelling that story of your grandfather. And how much that means to you, right? I don't know how long ago that was. We had a pretty amazing experience when we were leaving the house. <clears throat> I walked out the door first and Michael was right behind me and uh, grandpa told him to take good care of me. You know, that didn't cost your grandpa anything. He didn't sell out his faith to do that. He didn't compromise his own personal beliefs, his own doctrine. Yep. To me, he just practiced um, what we're taught. We've come out of general conference listeners, and we're taught to be inclusive. We're taught to love one another. And to me, these are the stories of sort of putting those principles into action is how are we going to treat each other? People that are different than us, people who have chosen paths that are different than us, how are we going to treat them? And to me, your grandpa and I can just tell how much that meant to you and still does today. Yeah. It was such a simple thing. I think part of the reason it means even more is because my dad is one of five boys. He's the oldest. And Dakin was pretty rigid his entire life raising those boys in Southern California. He was a very rigid, pretty stern father. And as Dakin aged, as one of the uncles have told me, you know, Dakin's edges kind of rounded out a little bit as he aged. And uh, and I think that's what made that happen. Um, great comments from both of you. We've done a little mic juggling, listeners, so we're passing the mic around. We've had some AV problems, but we're, we're working through that. We want to make sure everybody's voice is clear. Let's talk as this next segment, Michael Broadhead, about your mom that died. And I noticed as you listeners, these... This couple flew into Salt Lake, at, you know, to do this podcast in person. It means a lot to them, and I'm so honored to have them on the on the podcast. But I know, as you've been up here, you you 
uh, visited your mother's grave. We and did you that put yesterday. that on Instagram, and yep. I saw a picture of your mom's gravestone. But just talk about your mom and and where you are currently. Um, <clears throat> my mom and I had and have a very unique bond. Um, I learned to work from her. She was raised on a farm up in Idaho. And so my my work ethic as a worker is largely due to the fact that I was always mowing the lawn, working in the yard, washing the car, doing whatever with my mom. And every spring in Salt Lake, we would be turning the flower beds and planting flowers. And so it was only appropriate yesterday that we did exactly as I would be doing with her on a day like yesterday. Um, Tell us her first name. Gail. Yeah. Um, relationship with mom, you know, had its highs and lows. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it out to be anything that it wasn't. We had our, we had our, our great moments and we had our challenging moments over the years. We had our struggles even recently, even, you know, not long before she passed. Um, there were, there were some struggles. Um, and, you know, she and I both have our, our strong personality traits and, but most of the time we got along really well. Um, when Michael and I got married, uh, legally in November of 2014, we had had a pretty big trip planned that we instantly converted into a honeymoon. We were going to Germany. And one of the things that we did every time we went out of town is we would type up an itinerary of flight numbers, hotels, everything. And we would give it to both sets of parents so that if anything ever happened internationally, they would know exactly where we were. And so they got a very detailed itinerary. And so we had gotten married on a Wednesday or a Thursday night, and we were leaving on Friday to fly to London to start this trip. And uh, it was time to call my parents and tell them we had gotten married legally. So the next day, I had my parents on the phone, and it, it didn't go very well. And um, it was a hard moment. It really was. And this, you know, was not that long ago, and we had still been together for so long. And I'm not going to get into the script, but it was... Um, the the overall immediate reception from them on the phone reminded me that I was less than. And it was hard. It took me back to some really challenging times in my head. I thought I had gotten over that. And it was rough. And I, it, it, it took a while to get over that. Um, and they said some things that were probably just their scripts. They go to scripts and, I, you know, uh, they're human. And... Um, so it was a, it was a pinch point. Um, it was a hard one. Um, we moved along after that and had some highs and lows. And then my dad and I hadn't spoken for a couple of years. We had a pretty big falling out and, um, um, I won't get into the script of that. I'll just say that we hadn't, we didn't talk for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden I get a phone call that my mom's in the hospital in intensive care and went racing out there, and there's my dad. Talk about an awkward moment, um, very awkward moment. Um, and so mom was in the hospital for nine days, and then she passed. And then ever since then, it's my dad and I, um, I would classify it as we're finding a way to exist as best we can with each other. There's some serious challenges. Um, we have our differences. Um, we're both very stubborn. Um, <laughs> but we're finding, we're doing, I think what we can so that because all the support I've been giving 
towards my dad since mom died, especially as also supported by my husband. And so it's, it's been bumpy. Um, but we get along and we get together and, um, you know, we do what we can. (laughs) Yeah. Waiting for my dad's edges around. Um, so, um, so things with my dad, we just saw him, I just, we just saw him a couple of weeks ago. We had kind of a rough time. We've exchanged some voicemails and text messages since then. So it's, you know, it's, I'll use the script. It's a work in progress. That's honest. A lot of family relationships are, but I sense you're trying to hang in there. Yep. And I sense he is too. Um, I'm glad you were there for your mom. I loved your Instagram post. (laughs) I'm going to read a few words from that. Okay. Um, Mom loved her flower beds edged in a certain way. Each spring, she and I edged her flower beds and planted pansies. So we edged her headstone today. I think she's aware you edged her headstone, by the way. Bordered it just the way she liked her flower beds. You know, and you've got a picture of it here. And um, fresh flowers for mom, planted a few pansies, can of Coke with Mendy straw juice, fruit gum, Rice crispy treats. Miss you, mom, a yep. lot. And that to me is just, this is the human family experience. She's gone now. Um, I'm glad you were there. You've got this relationship with your dad. And I think you and your dad and our Heavenly Father would hope that relationship continues to, it, you know, just move in the right direction, more pockets of peace to use that will continue to happen. That, yep. that, but it's complicated. I don't mean to say it's simple. You just press a button. It's pure pockets of peace. Right. So... Keep sharing more of your story, Annette. Um, I have thought about whether I uh, wanted to talk about this. And I think I'd like to. Um, only because I think if there was information like this when I was 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 out there, as opposed to going to a library that nobody knew me in and I would find books in corners to read, about what it was that I was back in the day, going to the University of Utah library, hiding in the corners, looking at books, and because you wouldn't dare do it in a library where somebody would know you. Um, um, you know, unfortunately, for you know, I did have one of those experiences where a very trusted adult male took advantage of me at a, at the as best I can remember about sixteen because I had a car. Um, and, you know, sadly, these stories have happened too many times. And I remember when it was all over and I was trying to flee the house where it happened. I was told those words that abusers and predators use all the time on their victims that I've now learned about. And that was, you're the only one that I've done this with. You're special. And when you talk about the effects of behaviors, I remember leaving there thinking, and I didn't have a lot of cognitive wisdom at the time, but I remember leaving there thinking I was the only one bad enough for this to happen with. And you know that you try to just put it away. You don't want to visit it. But it's it's a component of it. It's it's there, and um, it just it surfaces. 
once in a while when there's a lot of news media on it, all of a sudden it starts flashing to my brain and I just, and it's done and gone with. So um, I know that's unfortunately that does happen. You're a complete victim, as you know. I hope you know that. And I'm glad you share that because I think it helps people be safe and people that are victims not to blame themselves. It gives you, I mean, if you're, if you're going to be in a position in life where, you, where people are talking to you and you hear somebody share that with you, the last thing you say is it happened to me. You just possess the ability to listen and believe. How powerful is that? You possess the ability to listen and believe. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Um, you don't have to prove it. Nope. And you don't have to sort of re-go through it. It really happened. You just listen and believe. Yep. Other things either of you'd like to share? Um, I... Uh, Obviously, as I was preparing for this, a couple of thoughts came to my mind. Um, and as I look back at this videotape of my life, look how old I am. I'm using the word videotape. <laughs> videotape. Um, anyway, um, one of the things that I'm sure you've heard people talk about in your podcasts is that I developed a pattern of doing things for others to fulfill my lack of self-worth and my low self-esteem. And I tried to become a person that was driven to a, like a manic stage of pleasing others, trying to be almost superhuman. And that was a way for me to get doses of feeling good about myself to cloud the secret that I was trying to hide. And that, when I talk about the effects of behaviors, that was, you know, big mistakes that I made um, doing things trying to win the approval of others. And the moment you step off that wheel of craziness, you start to understand that, okay, I can, I can, I can get feeling good about myself without having to do all this crazy stuff. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, if, if there was information like this when I was a young teenager, the peace that that could have helped provide was, is life-saving. Um, and I, when I talk about the effects of behaviors, I, one of my people that I just admire so greatly is that amazing Elizabeth Smart. I read everything she puts out on Instagram, and I look at the messaging that she has changed, the scripts that she has just eradicated through love and peace and allowing herself to be out there and she admits her bad days. It's not always just beautiful smiles, but she admits her humanness with her kids and her husband and her family. But yet she was able to drive such significant script changes and how debilitating the scripts given to her as a young woman were. Those were the same messages we were getting in priesthood. And I, I look at the work that she's done, and I, th I think she's just, she's done so much good work. So I agree. She's, she's one of my heroes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, uh, I went into this today, and I did say this uh, over breakfast this morning, that I wanted this first and foremost to be about Michael 
Rodhead and, uh, and this journey he's been on. So, um, the only other thing I have to say is that, um, I am so thankful that I am on that journey with him now. I love that. Um, just, I'm going to read a little bit, um, listeners, and I don't want to detract from what's been said by these two men, but I want to read on page 270 of my book because it just brings me back to my high school days and, and my interaction with people like Michael. In July of 2019, my podcast featured Luke Warnock, who recently graduated from Salt Lake City Area High School, where he came out as gay. He served as a student body president, was a key member of the state champion basketball team. Luke, who is not a church member, is attending college and hopes to marry a man. A month after I interviewed Luke, I attended my 40-year high school reunion. As part of that reunion, I watched a tribute to all those from our graduating class who died, including a few that were gay. In 1979, it seemed that many LGBTQ left Utah for major cities, where there's more acceptance and a feeling of belonging. I just as a side note, President Ballard talked a lot about belonging in his conference address in April of 2021 and support. Among the deceased was one of the finest from our class, but I never became friends with him since I felt uncomfortable on gay people and wasn't sure how to navigate the situation as an active Latter-day Saint. As I sat in our auditorium, I felt sad this good man was gone and was not there to enjoy the reunion. I thought about his parents and siblings and their sadness at his passing and how society would have been brighter with his contributions. Then I reflected on my friend Luke and the support he's receiving as he moves forward in his life. Luke is one of his friends, Andrew Heath, from his basketball team, visited with me at my home. And I might just add they ended up doing a podcast together, and Andrew Heath is now Elder Heath and serving a mission. Um, Andrew, who is preparing for a mission, I'm reading from the book again, reported that nothing changed when Luke came out as gay. Luke, Andrew didn't withdraw his friendship. He already knew he didn't choose, he didn't need to choose between supporting his gay friend and being a committed Latter-day Saint. As I sat there in my high school reunion looking at the picture of my gay classmate who died, I wish I had the tools that Andrew had to extend this kind of friendship and kindness. 40 years ago, could I have made a difference for good in his life? I believe that in 40 years, Luke will attend his high school reunion, be warmly welcomed, and be making significant contributions to society. On some level, I feel at peace that legal same-sex marriage is a possible road for Luke. Though it's outside the doctrine of our church, it is a path that could give Luke, Luke vision and hope to make responsible and safe decisions as he continues his life moving forward. So it's just my thoughts on the complicated nature of this space, but Michael, it's a testimony to your life. You didn't die by suicide. I don't, you've, I don't know if you've talked about that. I haven't asked you how suicidal, but most of the people I've met with have gone through types of deep suicidal ideation and maybe some attempts, but you're alive. And you're a functioning, wonderful member of our society, and our society is better off with you here. And both of your lives are better off because you're both of you in it and you're contributing in your company and your community. And, and the things you've learned just help our principles that bring us together. You haven't shared anything in this podcast that's divisive and wants to divide us or separate us. 
you've talked about painful experiences. But I think you've used those in the spirit of wanting those to be teaching moments so we can do better. And I think, I believe really strongly that heavenly parents really love it, just like I do with our six kids when our kids get along. And I think the bar is getting along in differences. Elder Cook, listeners from our church, gave a quote. He talked about unity and diversity as really kind of being the holy grail of where the sweet spot is. He didn't use those words, holy grail, sweet spot. That's an add-on. But to me, this is, you know, this kind of a podcast and these good men sharing their story is just immunity and diversity. And and if anybody should be as good at that, it should be Latter-day Saints, because we know, we believe we're all spirit children of the same heavenly parents, that we were together in the pre-mortal life. We share the same spiritual heritage. And so we should find ways to bring us together versus divide us. And you're teaching us how to do that. So those are kind of my closing comments, but I'll turn it back. I usually like my guests to have the final word, Michael Broadhead. Well, I think the place that you have on this planet and what you're doing is absolutely a miracle. I I listen to what you're doing, how you're doing it. Um, I loved that night that I was able to drive to Cedar City and hear you make that presentation about two years ago. It's awfully kind of you to come. That was, well, that was my alma mater. And there you were giving a message and about that LB. was at an institute, an I mean, LDS you were, institute that you came to. Yeah, you were giving a message of LB, LGBTQ uh, on a college that I went to much later in life. I mean, I moved to Cedar City when I was 30. So, um, but one of the things that struck me when you were talking about all these things that we try to bring together and healing moments. Um, A neighbor of yours uh, in high school that was one of my closest friends. um, She is my, one of my closest friends today. And I still talk to her and I was telling her about this podcast and we were talking about it. And I think she gave me a teaching moment that I know you can probably relate to. She said it was very difficult to live in that area and to be labeled the non-Mormon as opposed to being labeled the Lutheran that she was. And she goes, it always upset me that I was labeled by something that I wasn't. And I, I think to your point about these teachable moments, these teachable moments, I think that that in its simplistic uh, view is, is a great moment to just give people information so that they have those moments that are a little less painful for others. That's great. So. And with that, we'll leave um, this episode. Thank you, Michael Broadhead. Thank you, Michael Massoni. Um, and this is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.